0: Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is the third part of The Way of the Wolf. If you haven't listened to the previous two instalments, I recommend that you do, especially part two that introduced the way Jordan Belfort's straight-line persuasion method has been venerated by certain martial arts teachers. I've argued that this and similar hard sell aggressive sales techniques are eerily similar to the survival signals that self-protection teachers tell their students to look out for in deceptive predators. With self-help being a part of the immotivational world and having some shared roots with modern martial arts subculture, we saw how many martial artists were lured into becoming manipulators. I also gave some observations regarding the abuse of influencing techniques. With the stage set for martial arts teachers seeing themselves as retailers in the guise of mentors and students as their trusting customers, we'll look at a culture that turns this into a predator versus prey relationship. I present to you the conclusion of The Way of the Wolf. I hope you enjoy the show. According to the defiant sounding quote, the lion and the tiger might be stronger, but the wolf does not perform in the circus. It's a phrase that has ended up on martial arts rash guards and t-shirts as an example of a positive spin people have placed on wolves. Are they venerating the wolf's ability to work in an effective team, or their proven survival record? No, they see the wolf as an anti-conformist rebel who values freedom above all. For those who know my cultural background and upbringing, it won't shock you to hear that I despise this inaccurate and rather silly macho analogy. Wolves have performed in circuses. Readers of my historical book, The Legend of Sultan and Sauce, will recall that 12 wolves performed for Frank Taylor at Astley's Amphitheatre in 1888. Since then, wolves have not only performed in the circus, on film and other places, they've even worked alongside lions and tigers in the same mixed wild animal performance. Far from being anti-conformists, much of the strength of wolf evolution is based on their astounding abilities as a pack animal. Wolves, like their fellow canids, have a diverse, complex and highly adaptable social existence that's effectiveness rivals even that of the ant. Lone wolves are often romanticised as rugged, masculine icons for the baby boomer generation. But the reality is, lone wolves are typically female wolves driven out of the pack, which typically only has one breeding pair. Disconnected from the group, They are forced to hunt much smaller prey and scavenge until they find other wolves. This metaphor seems far from the images of lone bounty hunters, vigilantes, reluctant anti-heroes or uncompromising rebels we see associated with the term lone wolf in wish fulfilment fiction. However, as a jumping in point for us, confusion regarding the nature of predators is nothing new in the world of martial arts machismo. Despite the clear warnings flagged up by the likes of graphic novel comic book writers such as Alan Moore that characters like Batman are really just as demented as the criminals they fight, it is deceptively easy to venerate the same traits in our icons that we despise in those we consider to be the enemy of society. Let's take one of the great wolf-like macho legends as an example. The Spartans are often held up as a symbol of martial perfection. This is largely due to Zack Snyder's faithful adaptation of Frank Miller's intentionally fantastical comic book retelling of the Battle of Thermopylae, 300. Many in the martial arts world embrace the legend of the Spartan warrior. They are not just impressed by their great courage, martial abilities, self-sacrifice and death-before-dishonour attitude to combat. They are enamoured by the idea of a nation dedicated to the perfection of martial arts above virtually all other needs. Imagine that your only concern in life is to train in, The martial arts. The same year that Miller published his comic book series, Stephen Pressfield published his Spartan novel, Gates of Fire. This book was no less revering of the Spartan way and is infused with a strong military code. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman quotes motivational passages from the work and it is taught in the U.S. Naval Academy and Marine Corps during basic training. I cannot ignore the romance of the Spartan ideal. We can learn a fair few lessons from them. Historically speaking, at their height, there is no denying their efficiency in combat, understanding of mental discipline, collective courage and a spirit de corps. From what we know now from ancient historical sources, the Spartans were every bit the warriors of legend. They didn't go into battle half-naked, but were actually more technically advanced than their Persian opponents in the great battle, and their 300 member, that famously held the rear guard to the last man, was supported by 900 helots and 400 Thebans. But none of this diminishes their stature as fighters. Indeed, the Spartan hegemony saw Sparta grow into the greatest military land power in Greek antiquity. By 4th century BCE, the Spartans were the supreme power in Greece, having both invaded the Persian provinces of Anatolia and defeated the Athenian Empire. However, the circumstances that allowed the Spartans to rise to become what they became most famous for is another story. Rather appropriately for us, the Spartans attribute the reforms that established their warrior state to a mythical figure called Lycurgus, a name derived from the ancient Greek word for wolf. Like the Romans that would follow them, the Spartans cited a wolf in their cultural lineage. The animal was also associated with one of the most important gods of ancient Greece, Apollo. As many will know, Sparta isolated itself into a solely military state dedicated to a program of eugenics and extreme molding of its citizens dedicated to war. All Spartan children were examined at birth for any defects, allowing only those who deemed 100% healthy to survive. The rejects were exposed to the elements and left to die. If infanticide wasn't bad enough, children, and therefore subsequent generations of Spartans, were raised through an institution of child abuse. We're not just talking about extreme physical training, the likes of which are often romanticised in movies about the Shaolin Temple. I mean abuse in virtually every conceivable definition of the word. Babies were bathed in wine instead of water and ignored when they cried, being conditioned to be alone for long periods and not to fear the dark. By the age of seven, all boys were moved to a state-sponsored military school where flogging was ritualised to test endurance. Hazing, humiliation and bullying amongst peers was instigated and encouraged by the seniors to test mental resilience. Those same seniors, more often than not, were involved with an institutionalised sexual abuse of the youngsters as well. Many children would die through their childhood training process, effectively weeding out the weak in line with the Spartan ideal. All of this was achieved on the back of the work of the underclasses from neighbouring Laconia that performed all the skilled labour and craftsmanship, whereas agriculture was left to the enslaved helot. Incidentally, killing a helot was part of a Spartan boy's rite of passage. Whichever way you look at their situation, Spartans prospered by preying on dominating others on a national scale. Even through the contextual lines of history, they were oppressive compared to their neighbours. This isn't to say they weren't cultured and progressive in other ways. Contrary to popular belief, they did produce poets and scholars whose work has survived the centuries. It's also worth mentioning, because I know this will be raised in arguments for Sparta, that the women of Sparta also enjoyed far more freedom than those oppressed in the rest of ancient Greece. However, Sparta's eventual fall can be largely attributed to the traits that established their state and legendary identity. Although it has been argued that greed accumulated by their many victories in battle eventually softened generations of Spartans, inevitably they succumbed to internal rebellion, care of the amassing enslaved helots, and their isolationist ways meant that they suffered externally when their military fell behind the greater technology of their enemies. Given that so many of us in the martial arts world, including yours truly, cannot help but be drawn to emulating the heroic aspects of the Spartan mystique, we might look at their fall as a useful allegorical tale, a tale of caution for the wolf, just as Red Riding Hood and other folk tales might be seen as lessons for the wolf's prey. Much of the Spartan motivation to keep their army and their people in top-fighting form came from the paranoid threat that the helots would revolt. Eventually, and rather predictably, this is exactly what they did do on many occasions. Rather than remedying the problem by changing their system or bringing in a variety of concessions that would have led to a reformed Sparta, their all-or-nothing elitist militarism called for the same solution each time crush the helots into submission, and then allow business as usual. This proved effective in the short term, but the passage of time, where revolt was followed by inevitable revolt, led to Spartan infrastructure falling. The helot population grew in number over the centuries, to the point where they eventually overwhelmed their elite oppressors. All of this was made easier when their power and military prestige was diminished at the Battle of Leuctra, when the Thebans won a decisive victory over them. This time the Spartans were in possession of the larger army, but they were outmatched by the Thebans' untraditional battle manoeuvres. By this time, Sparta had already been losing its grip over various occupied states that overthrew their rule, and the armies that fought their former oppressors were now better equipped and better trained. It's very easy to fall into the Rocky Three mythology in this case, where people are thinking of Spartans that have softened over time, victim of their own success. But really, if you look at the whole situation, the isolationist attitude of the Spartans, this insular culture, led pretty much to their downfall, that and an uncompromising attitude towards the helots. Likewise, predatory martial arts leaders with single visions that enforce their own quirks and idiosyncrasies onto their schools eventually dilute their standards. As an empire of clubs is built under a brand, it becomes increasingly obvious that everything is being dictated by the words of a single leader rather than adapting to new influences or being guided by harsh critical thinking. Within these institutions we get instances of bullying, usually from senior to lower ranking teachers who might as well be the helots in our allegory. These teachers often leave, set up their own schools or support other institutions. As well as the Spartans of the ancient world, the medieval samurai are often presented as idealized warriors in the minds of modern martial artists. A deconstruction of the samurai code of Bushido is another topic altogether. Needless to say that pretty much what many modern martial artists consider to be Bushido is just as historically erroneous as what the average person thinks about European medieval knights' codes of chivalry. I urge you to check out the works of Anthony Cummings on this particular topic. Just Google Anthony Cummings, C U M I N S. And have a look at his YouTube channel. Um, He does a lot of research into historical ninjutsu uh, and the ways of the samurai. Amongst his various vlogs, there is some excellent historically researched pieces on Bushido and really what it meant to a medieval samurai. However, it's worth mentioning history's most famous samurai, Musashi Miyamoto's The Book of Five Rings, became a favourite philosophical book for the 1980s stock exchange when greed was good. Again, Masashi's work is worth reading, but I will be dubious about citing it as a healthy moral compass for today. Masashi's career might be described as systematic human slaughter through duelling with a psychopathic disregard for honorific conventions of the day that is often dismissed as strategy. Feudal Japan might be compared to Sparta in that it was a country ruled by military generals and its warrior class were the aristocrats of the country. Unlike Sparta, the conventions of feudal Japan happened within a country that was an island allowing for an environment even more suited for isolationist policies. The Samurai's position, relevance and military strength diminished through over 200 years of peace when their civil wars ceased. When the Japanese faced foreign enemies, they quickly discovered that their country was an age behind and the Meiji Restoration saw the end of the Samurai class. To give credit to Japan, the country might have been the exemplification of alienated military elitism, but from the Meiji Restoration onwards, they became one of history's fastest readapters. Upon reading the work of Kent Bailey of Virginia Commonwealth University, I can see that ancient Sparta might be seen as an institutionalization of the warrior hawk evolution. Bailey researched a number of surveys that revealed a natural, uncomfortable feeling experienced by non-psychopaths when they occupied the same space as psychopaths. The professor argued that this was a hardwired human survival mechanism designed to protect the pack from the unpredictable warrior hawk in their membership. This hypothesis would appear to agree with Gavin DeBecker's survival signals covered in the first episode of The Way of the Wolf. Bailey puts it that due to the highly hazardous nature of primitive human hunter-gatherer society, psychopaths, or warrior hawks, evolved in order to be the seekers and killers of the group. This minority of Paleolithic tribe members were needed to tackle the largest and most dangerous of prey for the benefit of the rest. They would have been equally good in sensing weaknesses in rival tribes and in taking advantage of those weaknesses without hesitation, ensuring their tribe's survival in a time when existence hung by a thin strand 24 hours a day, every day. Robin Dunbar, Professor of Psychology and Evolutionary Anthropology at the University of Oxford, cites the berserkers of Norseman Viking history as a medieval version of the Paleolithic warrior hawk, members of any given tribe. These elite Norse warriors, it is theorised, gained their name from the bear skins they supposedly wore and their apparent devotion to a bear cult. Interestingly, there was another less famous cult that were also sectioned out for their crazed rampages of enemies whose rediscovered shields and standards seemed to demonstrate worship of wolves. These bear and wolf warriors that grew in infamy between the 9th and 11th centuries via the sagas later written about them are described as believing their they shape-shifted into bears and wolves in their crazed battle fury. Dunbar says that the poems and other literature also reveal stories about these men turning on the countrymen they were tasked with protecting. This, the psychologist argues, might explain why non-psychopaths feel an innate physiological uneasiness towards the psychopath. During my early days as a martial arts teacher, I was made aware of martial arts clubs that preyed like packs of opportunistic canines on an unsuspecting public. Maybe wolves don't deserve the complete metaphor in this instance. Jackals might be a better description. In their rawest form, these clubs were transient by nature, only staying long enough to fleece as many students as possible. They set up shop with sensationalist advertising. With the customers in the door, they applied their sales pitch on them every lesson. The Jackal Martial Arts Clubs hit, get their students in, and then spend every lesson working in retail, milking everyone for memberships, membership packages, various items of compulsory training equipment, and any other product they can sell until the club eventually loses numbers. Then the club is closed down and the jackals travel elsewhere looking for more prey. Within this type of culture, there is a Jordan Belfort, wolf-pit type mentality amongst teachers, with the chief instructor encouraging aggressive competition between them to make more sales and drain clubs quickly. The corporate martial arts model probably has more in common with the culture of business motivation and the wolves of Wall Street mentioned in the previous podcast. These predators really are the apex ones in the martial arts world. Their money, resources and ambitions lead them to gobble up territory and see off competition. They're better compared to the wolves that once terrorised France and other European countries before modern times, or even to the lions that rule the plains of the African continent. Everything about their operations has become made to look more businesslike in its approach, to portray the veneer of respectability. These clubs, due to the size of the operation, are often managed more or less like pyramid schemes for the instructors, which would explain why so many martial arts teachers are susceptible to being conned into the various fad supplement pyramid schemes out there. Therefore, unlike the jackals, these predators do not just prey on the customers at the bottom of the feed chain, but also the lowest instructors promising big financial rewards. In some of these corporate structures, the lowest ranked teachers don't even earn. Rather, their teaching of students who spend their hard-earned money to learn martial arts is considered part of their apprenticeship training. They earn more as they climb the instructor ranks, kicking back large percentages to the top echelons. Some corporate martial arts structures have simply gone into franchising and generally just prey on the instructor customer. Just as there are countless numbers of diploma mills and other courses out there with certifications that have no legitimate academic or vocational value, many martial artists have worked out that if their brand is strong enough, They can do the same with the many dedicated martial artists who are hungry to teach what they love for a living. Within the corporate structure of the martial arts world, various different, more aggressive tactics are employed to get students into classes. One infamous karate association trained its instructors to go from door to door to to recruit students and even entire families into their programs. The association's founder brought in several ways to maximise numbers of students and to flood the market with his schools at the obvious detriment of training quality. Dedicated students were spotted early, very early. Reports from ex-teachers for the association said that they had barely been training for three months before they were asked whether they wanted to be on the instructor program. In essence, this instructor program consisted of the student stroke trainee instructor taking unsupervised classes for new students, teaching them what they had learnt over the past few months. The student or trainee instructor was given a special belt which they could only wear when teaching these classes. It was a black belt with a white stripe through it. This served a double purpose. New ignorant students immediately recognised the authority of the black belt, whilst the trainee was kept in their place amongst their peers, knowing that they hadn't got a real black belt grade, which still had to be earned and bought. Fast track programmes in martial arts are an entire subject on their own. The problem is that the more controversial ones are nothing new. Founders of some traditional martial arts spent surprisingly short lengths of time training before they named their own style. Others, such as General Choi hong Hi, were notorious for automatically turning karate black belt instructors into taekwondo instructors in favour of quickly building his international association. Whilst on the corporate side of things we should probably briefly mention contracts. Again, this is a controversial subject. Personally, I'm all for direct debits, standing orders and advance payments for a course or term of lessons. This procedure is in perfect alignment with the way professional education is sold in general. There are a lot of benefits for both a professional teacher and a student over having everyone fumbling with cash at the beginning or end of every lesson when the focus should be on teaching or learning. However, long-term contracts are definitely a more contentious issue and really one martial artists have often borrowed from the mainstream leisure industry. It would be fair to say that I'm only giving one side of the corporate martial arts story. I'm not condemning martial arts business, no matter how wealthy those are who run these schools. The corporate martial arts world has a lot going for it in terms of producing professional teachers who can reinvest in building better training environments, progressing various areas such as safeguarding children and also building good relationships with mainstream education. There's a lot of value in taking cues from the service industry and the fine art industry when one wishes to teach martial arts for a living. I see no automatic moral superiority in the myth of the pauper teacher. When I wish to learn a new skill in anything, I generally have more confidence in a professional over an amateur, simply because the former can dedicate more time to their continued professional development, which should mean better teaching and more credible knowledge. Even the McDojos, that derogatory term we use to describe a sizable section of the corporate martial arts world that places making money disproportionately high above any genuine passion for teaching, have a place in a fair and free society. I don't see why they need to be excluded or condemned provided they are transparent and honest about their service. Having said that, these places do attract predators of all the types and are the most shameless examples of pressure sales marketing. There are those in the martial arts subculture who have attempted an apologist argument for the McDojo, just shying short of taking positive ownership of the term. These individuals put it that they are flattered by the comparison with one of the most recognisable fast food brands, McDonald's, which has long proven to be a very successful and immensely popular international company. I'm not quite sure if I would like my service, typically associated with good health and physical fitness, to be aligned with a company that has a long reputation of being linked to bad dietary choices. I'm not condemning fast food in moderation, that would be hypocritical, but we need to make a sensible argument here. We can agree that fast food chains are often successful and the best have good customer service, offer value for money and tick every other realistic box a consumer might expect. However, it is rare that any of them make promises or claims that they are unlikely to deliver. The average fast food customer does not make their purchase expecting either premium quality food or even a balanced meal. It might be tasty and the canny buyer might be able to purchase something that roughly resembles a balanced meal but this is usually the exception and order that will usually consist of a very basic mix of saturated fats, sugar, refined carbohydrates and protein. By all means embrace the McDojo model and cater to the casual customer who wants to play at martial arts. But go all the way and don't advertise your business with services that you will not provide. If you don't teach contact resistance-based combat training, the type where students will regularly lose to one another in a decisive way, then you're not teaching anything that remotely resembles effective fighting. If you don't teach your students the legal definition of self-defence, then you don't teach self-defence. I'm not going to split hairs over what is and what isn't a martial art, but if all your students do is perform techniques to imaginary opponents or compliant training partners or in no-contact sparring then don't lie to your customer that they are learning to become effective in anything that remotely resembles a real fight or assault situation. Similarly, if you say you teach a traditional martial art, make sure that your history is up to date and very well researched and that what you know isn't just based on simple, spurious mythology. Before we leave this part of the discussion, it's important to take away that the corporate model has two inherent problems for martial arts teachers. The first one is the wholesale embracing of the business motivation culture. As I said previously, martial artists have a long-standing relationship with self-help. This often means taking on board predatory entitlement philosophies that ultimately pit teachers against students. It might also mean adopting various new-age pseudo-scientific ideas that more often than not share a relationship with pre-scientific concepts promoted by some traditional martial arts systems. Secondly, the martial arts teacher is a figure of authority to their students that is valued far higher than retailers in general. The student does not think of their teacher as a salesperson, which gives the teacher an unfair advantage in a sales situation. To give you a comparison, a gullible consumer might respect the apparent authority of a snake oil salesperson in a variety of different industries. Their Belfort Carnegie-style rapport building might trick a customer into thinking the seller to be a friend, but the dynamic remains retailer-customer. Just as the performer stands on the stage or behind the camera, might work hard to get into the hearts and minds of the audience. There is a recognised divide that prevents the spectator-consumer from actively stepping across a certain threshold. A teacher's boundary lines are different, and many martial arts clubs and associations actively push the concept further, stating that they are all part of a family. This can be seen in many traditional Chinese martial arts where entire systems have survived as being part of an actual family heritage. Or in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which was founded and largely developed by an expansive family, the Gracies, and used the concept of brotherhood as part of its branding. Gracie Baja, founded by Carlos Gracie Jr., where I learnt my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, used slogans like Organized or Train Like a Team, Fight Like a Family, as part of their value system. The martial arts teacher is a mentor, even a parental figure in the eyes of their students. It's a fairly universal concept whether one is being coached in Western boxing or entering into the Kohai-Senpai relationship of Japanese Bushido, or Budo. Trust runs deep, in this case, to the point that a sales pitch might as well be an order. An injured predator is often considered one of the most dangerous animals alive. They are desperate and will do anything to survive, taking whatever they can. We might liken this lame wolf to the teacher of a disintegrating club. I have witnessed some otherwise very good and legitimate martial arts teachers fall down a spiral of destruction that leads them to effectively turn on their students. There are many reasons why a school struggles to get students. Inevitably, most students in a class will leave. They will also have a variety of reasons, and it isn't always that they haven't got what it takes. They have given up, or any number of other weak-sounding excuses judgmental teachers too readily assume. On the flip side, it isn't because the teacher was wrong either. Many martial arts teachers keep a good relationship with their ex-students. Sometimes, those students feel they can return to the club at any time without any feelings of recrimination. Other times, this does not happen, but there's a mutual feeling of goodwill between both teacher and student. People aren't commodities, and it seems rather vulgar to think of them in the same way as Jordan Belfort's straight-line persuasion method, only worry if your customer goes elsewhere. Anyway, The injured wolf teacher is down on his luck. Perhaps other metaphorical wolves are at his door. He needs to gather what resources he has left in order to keep going. Rather than being honest with his class and asking for help to recruit more students, or reworking his marketing, or simply offering more services, he doubles down on his immediate sources of income. He squeezes those who remain loyal to him by forcing them to attend more classes or by hiking up their fees disproportionately. The teacher is now heavily invested in the short term. The club's health, An atmosphere might as well be a symbol for the teacher's desperate state, as it rapidly eats up all its resources until it is of no use whatsoever. Sadly, I've seen this happen all too often. Finally, there's another type of predator within the subculture of martial arts that is often nurtured by any institution that bestows all powerful positions of authority and isolationist ideals. They aren't necessarily separate from any of the previous types of wolf teachers, but can be seen as a dangerous eventuality for unchecked power. There have been a disproportionate number of cases of sexual misconduct in the martial arts world. No particular style appears to be immune from it happening. Whether you train for sport, tradition or modern self-defence, your subculture has convicted and active predators in the fold. If you don't believe me, have a good internet search for the cases. Sites such as Bullshido, which have publicly disclosed lists of martial arts teachers on the sex offenders register, see a direct correlation to the way martial arts teachers socialise with their students outside of normal lessons. Refusing to accept the simple fact that they remain an authority figure in the eyes of those who attend their classes. Mix in all the mystical philosophy that many martial arts teachers like to imbue in their lessons. And one can see a parallel with religious institutions. Consider these facts. Most sexual assaults go unreported. Martial arts on the whole is not regulated and does not have to conform to the same standards. Including duty of care as mainstream education. As a side note. Add in the fact that the majority of martial arts students are children. Finally, think about how many cases you have read or heard about involving sexual misconduct in a normal, regular school, despite the fact they are heavily regulated and have safeguarding policies in place. It's not difficult to see a martial arts teacher who views themselves as the alpha of their pack, who has recruited students through viewing them as a quarry or a resource to now take further advantage of their position. We cannot deny that the predatory psychopath presents a lot of attractive qualities to the martial artist and the self-protection practitioner. After all, many traits of a psychopath, charm, confidence, aggressive drive and certainty are often venerated by the masses as the signs of a good leader. When it comes to teaching someone the art of violence, we know that a certain mindset has to be adopted. Most civilized humans have a natural aversion for hurting one another and society is all the better for this inclination. Nevertheless, there is an acknowledgement that in the short term, Certain situations need an individual to override these impulses to subdue or neutralize a threat. From the soldier with his finger on the trigger to the civilian poised to punch preemptively, emotion can be a very dangerous obstacle. It's generally better to be able to switch off the kindly person in your head when it's time to act in self-defense. Cold single-mindedness is required to maintain a fast reaction loop to be ahead of an enemy or a predator. In his various works from what he calls Killology, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman says that the discipline of the uniform and other trappings help to prevent trained so-called sheepdogs from going rogue and joining their wild wolf pack cousins. My podcast, The Order of St Guinea Four, looks at some of the exceptions to this rule. Nevertheless, there is a very tenuous line between the attacker and the counter-attacker. The discipline of training and maintaining virtuous objectives should ensure that none of us are led astray. Throughout this trilogy of podcast shows, I presented the wolf metaphor in a largely negative light. Whether I was using the carter metaphor to describe the predators we should train others to spot and avoid, or when I was critiquing the way predatory machismo was being embraced by martial artists in the form of a wolf, none of this paints a fair image of this amazing creature. I live only a few metres from my parents' pack of wolves, which are some of the most beautiful and fascinating animals you could hope to meet. Wolves have complex behaviours that cannot simply be boiled down to their single status as a predator. Perhaps I should have called these shows The Way of the Werewolf, as the real wolf is never deceptive. We should be impressed by its thousands of years of evolution, its widespread survival over huge land masses. The wolf is reliant on and dedicated to their pack. They are also highly adaptive. The Way of the Wolf might be equally applied to an episode that praises the comradeship and progress of the growing number of forward-thinking martial arts groups. I shone an unflattering light also over ancient Sparta and medieval Japan for the sake of balance rather than personal taste. I criticise their predatory nature as nations that could be compared to martial arts schools that oppress and prey on their students and teachers, as well as the inevitable dangers of isolating one's group by extolling the ideas of elitism. We must never allow our critical eye to sleep, and we must be prepared to separate the mythology and the legitimate virtues of something from its flaws if we wish to be practical in our martial arts thinking. I'm not going to now offer the case for Sparta and the Samurai, I did offer some praise to them earlier on, but there's more than enough works that will give this side of the story. Now I would like you to reconsider another military force that doesn't get a lot of positivity in the mainstream and has often been associated with the wolf moniker. The Mongolian army of the Khans, the Scourge of God, are a far-fetched argument for a happily functioning and fair society. All of their most famous leaders were undeniably ruthless and hell-bent on conquest. Indeed, you are far more likely to find Genghis Khan in a book of straight-up evil people than you will do any of the Spartan kings or Japanese shoguns. Genghis Khan was responsible for the killing of over an estimated 40 million people, a sizable portion of the medieval world's population. He was a warmongering tyrant who inspired more warmongering tyrants from his family who tried to emulate him after his death. Nevertheless, by comparison the Mongols showed amazing magnanimity to those they conquered. They allowed the subjugated peoples of the various lands to operate in their normal fashion, not interfering with their politics or culture and thus helping to safeguard against uprisings. Like the Spartans and the Samurai, the Mongols had a warrior culture of strict training from infancy, their children learning to ride before they could walk. However, a key difference was the way the Khans learnt from those they had defeated, assimilating them into their armies and incorporating their tactics. There is a remarkable claim made in an extra edition of Dan Carlin's praise podcast series, The Wrath of the Khans, that the medieval Mongol army was a match for any army in subsequent centuries and until the extensive use of firearms became the norm. These particular wolves are an allegory for cross-training and progressive martial art. Don't forget to check your feed line for special Extra Club Chimera podcast shows on a variety of miscellaneous topics. Thanks again everyone for your support with the show. Please don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube as well as check out the clubchimera.com website. There is new content going up there all the time. Please send in feedback and like, share and subscribe to support my work. Ratings and reviews really do help keep the show going. Join me next time on this show when I discuss different fight dynamics in The Way of the Tiger, Fearful Symmetry. Thanks for listening.